Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to Semaphore and Cut, a podcast for developers about building great products. I'm Olga, a product marketing manager at Semaphore. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Darko, the podcast host, and Adam Dimitrik, SEO and founder of Adaptech. In this episode, Darko and Adam will be talking about event modeling and its relation with event sourcing, domain-driven design, and the open-closed principle. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation and learn new things about domain-driven design. So let's dive in. Uh, while learning event sourcing and event-driven architecture, starting with Greg in 0708, I noticed that uh, you know Greg was putting stickies on the board, and you might see this as kind of familiar from later works from Von Vernon and Alberto Brandolini as event storming. And uh, so that, that was a really interesting thing. Um, however, Greg was already doing event streams using sticky notes on a whiteboard. So there's a lot of things that happened in parallel across the world that were similar. So when I read about event storming, it was already familiar to me. And I kind of thought, well, maybe these people came up with it together, but it, they actually came up with these similar concepts in isolation from one another. So when we attempted to do event storming, it was our version, which was based on event stories in the style that Greg was talking about for for explaining streams of events in a real-time trading system and, and similar uh, industries like gambling and um, all those places where he worked. So this was kind of an eye-opening thing because when we extended event storming to continue to be used as a set of, like a principal way of gathering requirements or at least getting scope initially and talking about what the user stories were going to be, it ended up um, really needing to be beefed up and made more powerful for us because we were just a startup. So right from the beginning, um, we we were sort of taking anything, you know, take give it, give us a project. We'll make sure that event sourcing is cheaper than the traditional way. Well, how do you do that? There's a lot of things in the traditional way of developing that's that requires management. So, but again, we want it to be cheaper, so we couldn't have uh, project managers because that's expensive. We couldn't have scrum masters. We couldn't have a lot of the, these different uh, you know roles that traditional projects had. And so what we thought was event uh, storming done right was really a new method. And uh, so event modeling was really a created as a really fast way to specify an event source systems. But as we as we looked on this notation, it actually is a great way to specify any system, whether you're doing it in an event source way or not. I think that potentially, you know, CQRS event sourcing would be something that pe- people who are listening uh, are have heard of and are familiar with. Can we do like reintroduction to the domain? Event sourcing, which is really a way of keeping state of a system uh, that's different than the traditional application. The traditional application pretty much just writes directly to the tables um, in a database underneath. You might have a user table that's related to an orders table. When you make an orders go and change some rows in uh, or add rows into into the order table, if you sign up, you get some user table. It makes sense for trivial systems, but um, most businesses don't have trivial systems, at least in their core areas of concern, which we always call a domain. And so event sourcing is different because instead of just updating rows and tables, what we do is we have an accounting-like way of treating information system. I would I would say it's less of a computer science way of thinking about systems, and it's more of an accounting way of thinking about systems, where instead of just changing some rows in a table, we're going to just keep 
adding events to some ledger that we can't change. We can only add things, just like in accounting. No erasers are allowed. So event sourcing is really about just writing down, instead of changing and updating something, you would say, you know, user registered, user moved from one address to another. You would store those events as separate records that just keep getting added instead of changing changing a row in the database. Now, that doesn't mean that the system doesn't have tables and other things. The interesting thing about event sourcing is that this long stream of events is kind of hard to work with, with traditional places, but the benefit is that you have full audit all the time that uh, that allows you to see how you got some, uh, somewhere. And it ends up being something that removes like a hundred of the problems in software that we face. Uh, and one way that it does do that is that for each screen that you might have, let's say you have a, a maintenance screen where you have a list of all your users or a list of um, all the order sizes or something. Well, that screen might be different than a screen that the user sees when they're dealing with their order. And so what this represents is a separate projection of those events for the purpose of one screen. So for example, if I have a maintenance screen that shows the amount of money in outstanding orders currently, like you know, open baskets on your website. That's one projection that's shown on a screen that a main, uh, you know, a systems operator or a domain might have. And that's different than the projection of someone looking at their own basket on the same website. And it's really about this transforming those events into the representation that you want that actually makes event sourcing a lot easier because when I'm developing any kind of screen, I can easily make the best table format that I want, table schema for that screen, and then just put the logic in to interpret those events underneath to populate that. But when I'm developing the screen, I'm pretty much doing a select star from that schema, from that table built for that. And so what you really are driving at is is a multiple model approach with event sourcing. Inherently, you do that. And uh, that differs from a traditional application because a traditional application would have multiple concerns in one schema. So your variation would be the type of select statements you make. You push the complexity to the type of select statement you have to do. And because you have tables like you have reduced duplication in a traditional system, but that actually ups the coupling. So if you're going to change some data in one table, you have to be very careful to not adversely affect any of the other select statements and insert statements in the rest of the system. What we found by doing this and making multiple models is that we could have a lot more work parallelized. So we have have much larger teams working together and not stepping on each other's uh, toes, since the only thing we're concerned about when we're changing state is putting one more event on the ledger. And that's it. We don't have to worry about the downhill effect. Well, not entirely, but certainly we can put that off. And then when you uh, are working on a particular screen, report, or automation, you're making your own view of those events. And therefore, you create your own world where you're isolated Mm -hmm. from the work from your colleague next to you. And that allows people to work isolated. But then the event model, (laughs) which I mentioned already, kind of gives you the blueprint to know the shape of the data and the workflows and what steps there are to get there. So you can basically have contracts between each workflow step in terms of what uh, someone's work leaves behind on the ledger versus what someone is going to have in their projection of that for their screen. And those contracts are, are pretty nice. Yeah, the parts are domain-driven design, which really has a way of 
its strength is really about dividing up a system into what are called bounded contexts and other, you know, how you would divide a large system into subsystems and use uh, subject matter experts in each area properly so that the terminology keeps consistent within each one. That's one of the greatest strengths of domain-driven design by Eric Evans. And we have a representation in event modeling for that with uh, swim lanes that can be arranged to show separation between physical systems, separation between logical organizations of subsystems where, you know, they might have the same subject matter experts across maybe, you know, let's just say, for example, inventory and invoicing. So as Sanford is like a CI CD system, you know, the main quality attribute of a, a CI system is, you know, stability. Mm-hmm. It has to be reliable. So as you were speaking about this, I figured out that in the early days we were changing the states of many things, you know. Well, you mentioned state and there's there's an interesting thing that I forgot to mention is that uh, um, when we design a system, we're really encompassing open-closed principle, which is if there is a problem with the system, there's pieces that are entirely replaced. So we don't have a lot of flux in our system, and uh, that allows us to also do a mix of technologies um, as we can treat um, each state transition almost with, you know, if you're doing serverless, with a with a function written in an entirely different language. So we can do that even with regular hosting, not just Lambda functions and something in some cloud provider. But that mentality is there so that with our way of working, you're always adhering to open close principle. And that allows you to not have to muck in a lot of the code that you used to have and allows you to change one projection or change one state, you know, state change uh, function. And that granularity is, is very freeing. There's only compensating actions. You don't go and change historic data. You can only add new things. That's quite freeing. So you mentioned this, uh, you know, state, maintaining state. And so when you do event sourcing, it really puts that into quite, makes it quite visible actually to not just programmers, but to more importantly, business, so that they understand how the information in their system evolves without getting distracted by the technicals. Microservices architecture is all the rage these days. But do you know what it really means and how to implement it to empower your teams to make the best decision for the problem at hand? On the Semaphore blog, you can learn about microservices and how to take advantage of features like test reports, on a repo, and Docker support to build, test, and deploy your microservice application at scale. Head over to semaphoreci.com blog for more information. And happy reading! And to either a team or a company that you worked with or potentially to someone that you onboarded near to your team, what would you say are some of the common patterns of um, having some kind of like a blockage to embrace this this way of working and model and it's also a way of thinking and um, I would say that 80% of the actual work um, is still the same as dealing with some UI to display a, a you know, to a model in a template in HTML, that work doesn't go away. We haven't made work disappear magically. <laughs> the work still needs to be done. So, you know, you're not totally throwing away everything. You're actually using everything you've used before. It's still useful. 
Um, the only thing that's really added is the use of a ledger, which we use event store for, which is a database that's made specifically for being able to recall events in a guaranteed order that they were put in and guarantee that they're durable all the way down to F-sync on the disk and things like that with different things in, in the operating system level and actually the hard drives because hard drives will lie to you these days to make their numbers look good. And when you're doing event sourcing, you need to know that that event is persisted for things to work well. So when you're making appliances that have that, you know, um, I think Greg had a, a hard time, a harder and harder time finding hard drives that would have uh, adherence to having true uh, you know, file synchronization uh, to be guaranteed and not have this layer that, that hard drive manufacturers put in for better performance numbers. So that was a real problem. <laughs> but as we're getting into more and more systems that are stream-based and require the recollection of things in a reliable way, um, obviously the industry has put those in place in cloud providers and all that. And so Event Store is available on all three main cloud providers, but also can run locally, which is nice. And um, uh, so if someone comes in off the street, uh, because we're we're doing things with only very few patterns, we really want someone to just copy and paste the entire work of someone that did another workflow piece. We call them slices. If you look at a workflow of what a user is trying to do, we slice that up into vertical slices because that, that ends up cutting through the UI, any of the architecture layers to see what it takes to get from point A to point B, you know, the across the one projection or one, you know, storing one event as a result of, of someone pressing a button on the UI. Because these are patterns that we repeat and repeat and repeat, someone that's wanting to do this um, and they're brand new to do it, you know, basically they can look at the commits from the other people working on the project. And let's say their slice is about pressing a button on some form that's represented to the user and they have to store an event. They can go and look for exactly that. There's only four, like I said, four main kind of patterns. So they look for that in uh, what someone else did that's experienced. They literally copy all of those things, rename the name of the event, rename the name of the screen, move things around, and they're up and running within an hour or two, you know, pushing to production if need be. So the ramp up time, because we have such a cadence to dissecting an information system to these common workflow components, becomes actually a lot easier. Where I, th I think with the traditional approaches, we kind of let people make every problem a brand new puzzle. It's very hard to pull out how to do something. An event model really is a storyboard of kind of like a, a captured screencast of someone using the system that you intend to build. So you can dissect that storyboard into what happens exactly at this point, right? And those points of, that you question like that are very uniform across the whole system. You mentioned that already, but can you briefly walk us through your service? Uh, what is unique? As you said, you have like a fixed price model. I think that was the one way to really win clients over was to basically ensure that what they pay, uh, what, when they get into a contract with us, they're not going to have this nightmare scenario of having like, hey, we outsource the project and then it's like 90% done, 95% done. So I wanted something that just gets rid of that problem at the start where it's not possible to have that problem. And that was through fixed cost. But fixed costs traditionally are done on a much more less granular level. They're like, here's a, a whole project and we'll do it for, you know, $150,000 or 
here's, you know, three subcomponents. Each one is, you know, we wanted a methodology to eliminate all those critical problems with outsourcing because we're an outsourcing company. So if we fix that situation, we'll fix it for every other company that's wanting to do that. So in this way, by doing an event model, showing how many state changes there are in the system, how many different projections there are in a system would allow the granularity and visibility into why something costs X amount of money. I mean, a lot of groundbreaking ideas and ways of working <laughs> and patterns. Uh, yeah, I hope that a lot of people will listen to this episode. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it takes a little bit to kind of grasp, but I think it's more natural for people to do this. I know that it really unlocks the ability for people to get into programming if they want to, because this, the patterns are so simple. Instead of having to get stuck on a lot of factory patterns and this and that, you get, you know, once you get past the hello world, people get kind of discouraged that, you know, there's a, they don't know where to go. So we reduce that, that next level of complexity in, in automating systems to be these easy to follow formulaic ways of thinking of state. And I think thinking of state is kind of the easy kind of way to get through a lot of the struggles that people have when programming. Um, it's kind of like a debugger at the next level, kind of, you know, going through and having a, a real good eye on what's going on by understanding um, how state changes. And uh, it doesn't have to be events that are stored, persisted. It could be just the way you think of a variable that might store state. Um, if uh, For a high performance system, you might have an in-memory representation of some of the stuff, but the, the concept's the same. And so you can apply those same patterns across that domain that needs that fast way of working with in-memory representation instead of on-disk representation of state, but the same way of uh, talking about it is, is present. And so I think for, for people that want to get to the next level, there's, there's a lot of distraction in the middle of programming, uh, uh, mostly with you know people getting distracted by new frameworks. Hey, there's Next.js, there's Vue, there's React, and you have GraphQL, you have all these cool things. And the goal of that all of these things still do is to get the system into the next state that's logical. That doesn't change. So we have to remove that distraction from our minds. And I think event sourcing and event modeling really help you to have grounding in the integrity of your system. So you have the confidence to continue, even though you might, you might not be familiar with a new stack or something like that. And then also to be compensated fairly for it. Where can people find more about you and your company? The number one thing to probably read, uh, that's the event modeling original article, and that's on eventmodeling.org. And then, of course, our website is uh, adaptecgroup.com. I'm quite active on Twitter and LinkedIn. So if you look for Adam Dimitrik on, uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn, those are the two most um, common places. I also have a lot of videos on, uh, on YouTube with people talking about everything from domain-driven design to obviously event sourcing and event modeling. If you look at the resources page on eventmodeling.org, that has uh, a link to a Slack group. And uh, there you can ask any question. I'm usually popping in there if I'm not busy a few times a week, but there's other people that are already in there, ready to answer questions. Great. Thank you for the conversation. It's a pleasure. I'm happy to help anytime. That was an insightful conversation. We learned a lot about domain-driven design and event sourcing specifically. Make sure to subscribe to Semaphore and Cut on your podcast player of choice so that you don't miss our new episodes. And stay tuned.